Hello, everyone. I hope this episode of the podcast finds you well. I know a lot of people this past weekend attended Spring Ward's annual RISE conference. I personally was unable to attend as I was traveling to North Carolina, but I followed along on Instagram. All of the keynote speakers from companies like Google, IDEO, they sounded incredible. A little bit of FOMO there on my end. I was super excited to see the alumni on the success stories. I'll be speaking with some of them more on this podcast. So if you were like me and could not go, I will be bringing them here to this platform. I also saw that there was a topic on if AI will be taking over UX. I certainly have opinions on that, but I'll save them for a more applicable time because today we are kicking off this podcast with what Abby and I promised, a story from a different alum each episode. And today I'm so excited to have you meet Timothy. Timothy is a data scientist at the New York City Department of Transportation. He completed the Springboard Data Science Program in 2022 and now works on the data projects analyzing city bike ridership data. He also spent time as an analyst with Caesars Entertainment, where he worked in the Enterprise Data Warehouse Department, supporting various analytical teams and their data pipelines. Welcome, Timothy. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be part of the podcast. Likewise, and when I saw that you worked for the New York City Department of Transportation, I, as a New Yorker myself, I had some notes for you. I remember one of the first assignments Springboard assigned the UX students was to go to a location and observe people using something. So I sat in the subway and watched people use a broken ticket machine, and it was just mayhem, but you work for City Bikes, so we'll just have to talk about how you got to where you are instead of just hearing me complain about the subway. As a as a shameless plug, I will say that a city bike is an excellent alternative to the bus transit system if you are in New York City. Uh, but I think a lot of people tend to use it for the first mile of travel and the last mile of travel, and that's a great thing. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about my journey. Uh, if you had any specific questions about it, or if you want to just kind of give an overview. Well, yeah, I'd love to hear where you were before you even decided to get into data analytics. Like, what were you doing in the before times? The, the, dark, the dark before times the before I was at data. <laughs> before, before you worked for the New York City Department of Transportation, which is clearly the best. <laughs> yeah, so I was actually in academia. I went to a little university called the University of Southern California, where I studied neuroscience and got a master's degree in neuroimaging and informatics. So for a lot of my life, uh, you know, I was really interested in brains. And so I ended up learning about brains in college. And I think the great thing about the neuroscience track and the neuroimaging track that I took was the fact that it is all kind of founded on data. So I think my journey in data really started very early on. It just wasn't so apparent at the time. I think when I was going to school, the, the title data scientist wasn't really as prominent as it is now. And so it didn't really occur to me that that was a, a path to take. And so that's why I started teaching. <laughs> After I finished my master's degree, I, I went to teach, you know, in the same university at USC. And this was after I had did a brief stint in Alaska as an image specialist. So kind of a precursor to 
image identification, kind of that we see now with the computer vision, right? Kind of some sort of rudimentary techniques were used to analyze images, um, much like how we have TensorFlow now. So I've always been interested in data. It wasn't until really the pandemic hit where when my instructional contract was uh, greatly threatened by the changing times, um, I sat down with with my partner, my now wife, and she was like, why don't you just crunch numbers for a living? You know, do data. You know, you're smart. <laughs> you, you like numbers. And I was like, sure, I'll look into it. And And really it kind of hit this perfect combination of programming and and statistical analysis which really reminded me of what I was doing in masters in my master's program you know taking brain images writing programs to analyze them so I think it really felt like a very natural transition for me to kind of go back to that realm of data you know and and I did the Springboard boot camp you know worked my butt off for like three months um, interviewed for quite a few quite a bit longer than that. And then landed my first job at Caesars Entertainment, working with the Enterprise Data Warehouse team. And now I'm here in New York City, working for the Department of Transportation as a data scientist. That's fascinating in the sense that data has always been a part of your life. And I, I don't know enough about the data science field, but I guess back when you were exploring that space, for lack of better words, data science wasn't a profession yet. Is that accurate? I definitely think it was a profession. I just okay. wasn't fully aware of it. And it definitely was not at the same scale that it is now. I think it's definitely evolved in the past decade. Like it really came to the forefront in the past decade because these companies were collecting so much data that they needed somebody who was specialized in the, you know, in the analysis of it. And so I think it was a natural kind of progression from your traditional data analytics and, and with more advanced machine learning techniques coming out with more advanced kind of computational designs, um, it became a very natural pathway. And so it kind of grew and became much more popular as these kind of technologies and computational skills started to be more frequent. Certainly. I can't think of any, I know data is way more than this, but I can't think of any website product that I use online where I don't have to enter my name, email, telephone number. Obviously, again, there's more data to be collected on a person, but yeah, I can't even imagine the amount of data that is being collected by these companies. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you ended up at Springboard. Obviously, you had this conversation with your wife. She thinks you're smart. And what made you look into data science as more of a serious profession? How did you find Springboard? I'll answer the first part, for which is how, why data science? I think at first I was really thinking data analytics um, because I, in my mind, data analytics would lead to data science. And so I was like, well, let me start with analytics because at the time my technical skills technically weren't very strong, right? Um, I did dabble in code, but not to the extent where I thought I could really comfortably be a data scientist. 
And so really I started looking into the analytics programs, right? I like math, uh, which is very uh, weird to say, I think, but I like math. You know, I took advanced calculus in college. I enjoy statistical methods. I like learning and reading about like weird mathematical formulae. And so I think that analytics felt very natural because I was used to dealing with epigenetics data, you know, the brain genome, which is like, gigabytes and gigabytes of data per person and you know and so i was looking at the analytics first but then i found out about data science and it seemed like a great challenge and so how i ended up at springboard was actually through a lot of research <laughs> i looked up a lot of programs i looked up kind of all the different boot camps out there i did a lot of cast analysis of like what is offered what isn't offered and Springboard at the time felt like the best in terms of breadth of what they covered, and, and it seemed quite thorough. And so I went for the Springboard data and actually signed up first for the data analytics program, but they uh, accidentally sent me the data scientist, I guess, pre-exam. And they said I did well enough that I should consider doing data science. Oh, interesting. So you have to test into this data science program. Yeah, for both, I know, actually for both data analytics and data science, there's like a pre-exam that I have you take just kind of to test your rudimentary foundational skills. I see. Oh, I didn't know that. The more you know. That's great. So I, I love how that was kind of a happy coincidence that they suggested something else for you. So you're enrolled now. Tell me a little bit about your experience in the program. Um, what did you find useful within it that maybe set you up for where you are today? Yeah, so I think that for the most part, the program was decently structured. There was definitely a concrete path to follow, and I think that helped a lot. When you're someone who is new to the to the field and making a complete transition, right, it can be quite daunting. And there's plenty of resources out there. There's plenty of online resources out there. But really, it's how do you combine those resources together into a meaningful path? And I think without knowing a lot about the industry, that's quite challenging. So I would say that was kind of the major benefit of Springboard is not necessarily that they were extremely unique or 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 inaccessible otherwise resources, right? The resources are all out there. It was just that they put it together for you in a package that made it a bit more accessible. I think that's a great way to put it. I personally, when looking into UX careers, there are some self-taught UX designers. They never did any formal, informal education. They just taught themselves. And I knew I couldn't do that. And to your point, yeah, not knowing anything about the industry putting those pieces together would be incredibly challenging. So with that being said, you know, was there anything outside of the course that you did that helped prepare you a little bit? I'll be honest. I did quite a lot outside of the course. I found that the material provided by Springboard was a great introduction, um, but not quite at the depth of understanding that I desired. And I felt that in order to truly feel like I was ready, I had to do a lot of outside research. And so I would say 50% of my time spent on the bootcamp, 50% was spent on doing external readings. And so I did things like I bought books, 
you know, I read a lot of books about data science, about machine learning, about very specific topics of machine learning that I was interested in. I did online courses through other websites like Udemy and Coursera, where I was able to sit down and follow another course on like fundamental Python and mathematics for data science. And so I think that as, as nice it was to have that material laid out for you in Springboard, you know, it's designed so that you could finish it in a kind of fixed period of time. And I, maybe this was from my experience in academia, I knew that the depth wasn't quite there for me. And so I wanted more information and so I sought out that information. Um, so yeah, I did a, did a lot of reading and, and a lot of watching videos and, and practice. Great. Well, was there anything specific within those videos, like any topics that really stuck out to you that you felt you needed to know? Um, there was nothing technical. <clears throat> I, I don't think that technical skill is necessarily something that is so inaccessible or mysterious, right? It's really just about spending time learning. And so I think what really stuck out to me in the videos, they didn't say it the exact way, so I'm going to say it a little bit more bluntly. Uh, and actually, it's it's a paper, not a paper, it was a, I guess, a article that was submitted to a science research journal. And um, I actually shared this with a friend recently. It's the importance of stupidity. <laughs> and when I say that, the most important thing you'll have to learn is not any technical skill, because you could learn any technical skill, but rather the acceptance of being kind of stupid sometimes. You have to acknowledge that you know you will start knowing next to nothing and then you'll spend years on something and then you'll know a little bit more than nothing, especially in a field like data science and technology where things move so quickly and things change so quickly. Accepting that you'll kind of have a sense of being behind is a big part of the career. And I think that is kind of what motivated me because one, I'm stubborn and I don't like to be stupid. <laughs> uh, and, and two, accepting that it's normal to feel this way really motivated me, really prevented me from being scared of trying out new things. Yeah, I think that's so important to bring up in the sense of a lot of people probably are in careers where they're expected to know everything and perform and it is very scary in that situation where you just don't know everything. I know in UX, you're supposed to stay very objective. And it took me a little bit to actually be comfortable asking dumb questions to figure out what I need to do. So definitely amazing insight there. So now that you know, you're finishing the course, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your job hunt, because that's the most intimidating thing post boot camp, in my opinion, I don't know if this was the most intimidating thing for you, but what was that like? Uh, in one word, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> oh, okay, please elaborate. Use as many words as you'd like. <laughs> it's rough. And it's it's rough. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You have to kind of be ready to, like as hard as it was to learn, it's it's much harder to have to prove that you know things. A bit more concretely, 
you know, I think I got pretty lucky. It took me about six months to find a new position. You know, I, I already had a job, so I wasn't like super like in dire straits if I didn't find a job, right? But I was trying to get out of my position. And then so it took me about six months, a lot of rejection, you know. I applied to a bunch of jobs. Some jobs ended up not even responding, right? We all, we all know that. Some jobs rejected me. Sometimes you would get a call from a recruiter. You would answer. You would get them all these things. And they're like, they're like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll let you know. We'll let you know. And you heard nothing. Um, I made it to the final stages on a couple of occasions. And then it turned out that they're no longer hiring for the position because of shifting needs, shifting finances so just like understand that on some level yes you have to prepare yourself you have to practice you have to know what you're talking about you're gonna have you have to have confidence but accept that it's not all you there are factors outside of your control that are preventing you from getting hired as well that's absolutely true i even when i worked in my other professions i would try to hire interns and HR just would not even participate with my needs. So even though I wanted to hire people, yes, that's absolutely very true. And I don't think anyone's ever said, wow, that job hunting experience was incredible. So <laughs> you're not alone. And But it still sucks to hear that it was tough. So do you have a number of how many jobs you applied for? Ooh, ballpark, probably... Let me do some quick math. I applied to like five to 10 a day for like pretty much every day for like a couple hundred, two, three hundred or more, you know, and, and obviously some of them are quick, right? Some of them you use kind of like quick apply, quick apply, quick mm -hmm. apply. But yeah, it, it, it was it was quite a large number. I want to say about two to three hundred jobs, which is not as much as some people have. I mean, I've heard some people apply to thousands of jobs and and still struggle. So I couldn't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I I don't think I quite applied for that many. However, going back to like you were having interviews, you were getting to third round. So that clearly meant you were doing something right. Yeah, I'm going to give advice that no or very few career people are going to give you, but only people who've gotten the job are going to give you. This is coming from a, I think, I think anybody who's in the career guidance world is going not going to say this but i think the best advice you can have is fake it till you make it <laughs> and what i mean is be confident in yourself i think my first few interviews were tough because i was a little like un unsure i was kind of like underselling a little bit or you know i was i was not being as descriptive as i could be now i'm not saying to flat out lie uh <laughs> But you should definitely give yourself your best opportunity and make yourself look as good as you can. I had a very interesting journey, I suppose, when I was applying. And so that's why I say um, fake it till you make it. I completely agree with that. And I have, I also do agree. I think a real career coach would not push for embellishing things. Or maybe my analogy would be to make your career story insta-worthy in a way. You know, yeah, you do kind of have to 
maybe BS a little bit, but don't lie for sure. For sure. Well, like you use years on your resume. You don't use months. Like make it years. That we, we round one month up to one year now. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I worked it for really... three months, three years and a month. That's four years now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, do you know people will conduct background checks, so they do, do verify. They trust you... but verify. Yes. And do I you will say what you will. <laughs> I think a good analogy is is if you're trying to sell something like a used item. Would you understate how great it was? Or would you be like, would you just kind of say, yeah, it's it's all right. You know, it's got some use, but, you know, you probably like it. Or would you say like, yeah, this is like the best thing I've ever used. And I got a lot of use of it. It was such an amazing product. You know, if you're trying to, and you have to think about yourself in the same way that you are trying to sell yourself to this person who does not know you. They're not going to make the best assumption about you. They're only going to take your word for things. And if you don't give them your word, well, they're not going to give your word to the person who's making the decisions. I think that's a great way to put it. If you can't display that confidence of what you're doing to convince the hiring manager, absolutely. That very much rang true when I interviewed at Verizon. I knew within the job description, I had done all of those things within Springboard, within my internship that Springboard placed me in, that I felt confident enough in doing that at Verizon. So yeah, you just have to go for it. But I definitely did look at certain jobs where I felt I was not qualified for. There are some boundaries I had. I'm sure, Timothy, you did have where you were like, this job is not for me. Apply to anything and everything your heart is set on. No, I, <laughs> I think that... And actually, let me share a very funny story. This is how little I knew about the, the tech job world. So in the tech world, there's a position called... There's a position level called staff. And anybody who's in tech knows about what that means. As a person who wasn't in tech, I was like, oh staff you're just like a staff member you're just like a person so i applied to it and i was like and then i, I look at the experience i was like oh like medium like middle experience right three-ish to some level years i was like ah i'll apply um instantly rejected and i was like hey i asked a friend i was like hey what why did i get it rejected so fast from this like position and they're like well it's a staff position i was like yeah but what is it? Is that's not entry level? And they're like, no. <laughs> uh, apparently, staff is medium to upper level of, um, I guess, the position that you're in. You know, it's quite high. It's definitely not entry level. It's a little bit like upper mid level. And I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. But the reason why I apply wasn't necessarily just the title, but it was more so that. You know, the experience and, and the questions they were asking, I felt like, well, I could do that, you know. And and realistically, you have to look at positions not just in the title or, you know. Yeah, I mean, just don't look at not just the title, but look at what they're asking for and, and decide for yourself, can I do this? Is this something I can do? I think I could do it. Can I convince somebody else I can do it? I think so. And then just apply Right now, if they're asking for like five to seven years in data science and four to six years in B2C, like very specific things that you definitely don't have the experience in, 
maybe don't apply. <laughs> but if it's like two to three years or one to three years, and they're like, hey, Python experience, two plus years, I, I think that's still worth throwing your hat in the ring because sometimes they ask for things that they don't really know how much they want or they're much more willing to to train than than they want to put on paper. And so, again, kind of circling back to the fake it till you make it mantra, um, decide whether or not... And again, if it's a dream company of yours, if it's a dream field of yours and something you have a lot of... Again, I think something to also consider is experience in the field. Have you been working in this industry for a long time? You just wanted to be a data scientist. I, I would say even if your technical skills aren't quite there, you know, apply. And I think that most people would agree that domain knowledge and industry experience kind of outweighs raw technical talent most of the time, as long as you have a reasonable amount, again, reasonable amount of technical skill. Right. Obviously, I'm not a data science expert, but using Python, I've never used Python. I just know that it exists. So that would make no sense for me to apply to a job and expect them to teach me Python. I think that advice is very spot on. And I would love to kind of hear about your interview process with Caesars, because that was your first job out of boot camp. Let me back up. Tell me how this interview process went. Well, it was a fun one, as you know. <laughs> I thought you said it was terrible. Well, I like <laughs> adventure, so it was fun in that sense. <laughs> it was kind of miserable. And, and looking back on it, it's one of those like, oh, this is hilarious. Uh, in the moment, it was kind of terrible. So I had applied for Caesars back, way, way back, I think... It must have been like October or November. And I landed an interview and I speak with um somebody quite somebody quite high up actually. Um and for those of you who don't know, typically you don't speak to higher up managers until the later stages of, of the interview. Normally like the first stages are like lower middle management. A anyway, so I, I talked to this person. I applied for their I applied for a data analytics position at Caesars, right? Because it was like kind of adjacent to my data science skills. And I landed an interview. And I do this interview. And at the end of the interview, the person's person was quite honest. Um, they were like, well, you might be overqualified <laughs> given your technical ability. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> I didn't say that. I was like, no, no, wait, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. You definitely felt that. <laughs> and then they were like, well, you know, this person in another department might be might be interested in you. And this is their name and so on and so forth. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, thank you. And, you know, that was that. Hear nothing for like, you know, I sent a follow-up. By the way, always send a follow-up email. I sent a follow-up email. I was like, hey, this is Dr. So-and-so with the like coordinator person and, they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch. And I was like, okay, great. Hear nothing for like a month and a half. Like literally radio silence. I was like, well, I guess that's done. Get a random email saying, hey, this is so-and-so from Caesars. We want like to interview you for a, a data scientist position. And I was like, awesome, cool, wow, like great. 
So I sit down, I do like the in initial interview, they give me a take-home assignment, I do the take-home assignment, I return it, I do the follow-up interview, and they're like, okay, cool, like, thank you, um, we'll get back to you. They get back to me a little later saying, hey, so we're not hiring for this position anymore. I was like, oh, okay, but there's somebody else who was interested in you. And I was like, okay. I guess I'll just keep getting punted around. This is fine. And they're like, it's so-and-so, like, reach out and ask and, you know, like, we'll, we'll see what we can do. I was like, okay, sure. So, I, again, I follow up. I send a thank you email. And I was like, hey, I'm supposed to talk to so-and-so. And I hear nothing, literally nothing. And randomly, I get a phone call. And I was like, when well, you get a number. They oh. just called you out of the blue. I was so yeah. old school and intimidating and oh my gosh, <laughs> why do, why do people do that? <laughs> and also it was like an unknown number, right? So I was like, do I pick this up? I, I mean, luckily I was like in my interview mentality. So I was like, let me just pick it up in case it's like a recruiter or something. And I picked it up and they're like, hey, this is so-and-so from Caesars Palace. And I, I got your resume from so-and-so and wanted to talk to you about this position. And I was like, Okay. And we talked about it and, you know, it was kind of outside of my comfort zone, actually. It wasn't quite exactly what I wanted to do, but I was like, you know what? Let me just get my foot in the door. Like, let me just, let me just do this. And they're like, okay, cool. You seem like a decent fit. Um, we'll, we'll get back to you. I was like, okay, cool. Thank you. No, no nothing. I can't even send a thank you email because I didn't even get their email. Like, I just like had no idea. So I just like emailed the same contact person. This could have been like a, a prank call for all you knew. It could have been a total prank call, right? From like a friend or something. And then a couple of weeks later, they're like, let's do, can we do a follow-up interview with, with the, with the you know, the next person up? And I was like, sure, I'll do a follow-up interview. And we chit-chat and, you know, we get along great. And it was a good interview. And they're like, awesome. Like, we think you'll be an excellent fit for, for the team. And I was like, awesome. Like, let's do it. And so we, we, you know, and long story short, I, I, you know, started working at Seasons Entertainment shortly thereafter, after being redirected to three different teams and uh, finding a completely different department to work for. This sounds like that fairy tale. Like the first job was too small. The other job was too big. This job was just right. It's a, gold, a real, real Goldilocks job. A real, you are the Goldilocks of, uh, <laughs> of Caesars. <yeah. laughs> <laughs> yeah it was, it was great it's good fun that's that's a wild story like just a phone call out of the blue um mm -hmm. okay so you were saying that this job wasn't exactly what you were looking for what specifically was that yeah it was more focused on um sql which is a database querying language it's called structured query language Hopefully I said that right. And yeah, it was much more in the side of database management and data data engineering. And it wasn't, you know, it was a little bit of analytics, it was a little bit of a little bit of Python. Um, it was not necessarily the data science that I wanted to do, but I was like, you know what? Like it's a data job, it's it's in the data field. Um, it'll, it'll, it'll give me some insight into how things are are run. And so I was like, sure, let me let me go for it. Let me just go for this job and and try it out you know and, and no regrets i i see no regrets here um so tell me about your day in and day out at caesars because i remember in our pre-interview 
you know, I'm just gonna let you talk. What was your day in day out at Caesars? What what were you specifically doing? <laughs> Putting out fires all the time. <laughs> Basically, what the team that uh, does is there are asks for data, right? So we don't necessarily analyze the data at the very end. We do some, but not not a ton. Really, the main goal of the department is to make sure that the analysts get data that they need in the times that they need it. And so you actually get to work with a lot of the backend side of things and you have to build reports and, and things like that. So day in and day out was um, answering emails about, hey, why isn't this table working? And it's like, oh, because it broke. Let me fix that for you. And fixing that might look like um, making sure that the table names correctly reference in the query, making sure that the computers that are running the processes like run correctly, right? It could also just mean like, hey, like this pipeline broke down um, due to some resource constraints. Like, can we optimize this? And so it was a lot of SQL, which I was not necessarily the most comfortable with at the time. I mean, I, I've, I've done it enough to to be decent, you know, enough to understand what's going on. And yeah, a lot of it's just kind of rewriting, optimizing other people's queries, making sure that things that can be automated become automated. There was a lot of that. There was a lot of building internal tools for automation actually and so day-to-day -day was very interesting to say the least and i loved hearing about that initially when i was looking for jobs i was pretty much open to anything there were certain industries like gambling that i didn't want to solve problems in because i think gambling for me personally is a huge way it's not how i want to spend my money and I didn't really want to solve problems for industries that I didn't think were worthwhile. That being said, hearing what you did, it made me really interested. It separated the actual act of gambling from just observing people. So maybe gambling is in my future. I don't know. <laughs> but it is, it is definitely, going back to you saying that you like studying brains, is definitely a certain type of person. Yeah, you definitely have to. I, and I don't know. I, mean, I think we don't really think about it too much. You know, the the ethical, moral implications of the jobs we pick. Um, but, you know, I think that there's a obviously it's weird to be part of an industry where the goal is to make you waste copious amounts of money. Every industry is trying to get you to do that. Right. Like, obviously. But gambling has a certain kind of special way of making you do it, which you know, it's not the most agreeable. And I can definitely understand wanting to make sure that you're in an industry that you feel comfortable in. I definitely did not necessarily say, oh, yeah, I love gambling. You know, I was very honest. I was like, you know, gambling's gambling. You know, it's not for me. It's interesting from a kind of data, data and people behavior standpoint, but it's not something I'm going to necessarily promote day in and day out. And I think that most of the people who, who work who ironically who work for the casino are actually more interested in how do we optimize the experience. That's, you know, maybe some, maybe back in the day where, or, you know, some people like maybe the CEO are like, yeah, like how do we get these people to gamble more? <laughs> and really the, a lot of it is how do we, it's like every business, how do we spend the least amount of money to capture the largest audience to do the thing that we want them to do, you know, uh, and thankfully, this, oh, by the way, this is a kind of a another shameless plug, but preface this with um, 
there is a lot of a huge initiative for responsible gambling, especially with online gambling. And so there's actually um, automated systems to suspend player accounts who we think are doing doing too much. Uh, and there's a variety of factors for that. But yeah, it, it, the, the caveat, I suppose, is that, you know, we're trying not to ruin their lives. Wow. So it's almost like the bartender cutting you off. Exactly. There, there is a bartender who now cuts you off from your digital slots. <laughs> That's a, actually a great thing to hear. Yeah. Again, I know there's some people who will just do some slots just to gamble each their own. I just have no desire, but that is very fascinating and a really interesting insight into a space that I personally don't, being blunt, don't care about. But Again, very interesting thing that they're doing there. So happy to hear that. But you're not there anymore. You moved from California to New York City to work for our Department of Transportation that I pay a lot of tax money to. So I'd love to hear about how you interviewed with them. What brought you to your second job? Yeah, first of all, first of all uh, thank you for paying my salary. I appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, I would. I don't have a choice here. <laughs> I don't have a choice. I, I appreciate the kind of generous donation that is made by every New Yorker. <laughs> I was forced by law. <laughs> oh gosh, that's so funny. Yeah, it is. Can I just say, quick aside: the discovery of a city tax boggles me. That the city of New York specifically takes money out uh, boggles me. <laughs> It is a privilege to live here, for that sure. Is, that, is, that is their selling point for the city tax. I don't agree. Uh, but I will say... Oh, I don't think it's a selling point. I just think it's something that you just deal with because you get to live New in New York attitude. City. And I'm New Yorker nowhere. <laughs> I know. I'm, I, will, I don't foresee myself ever leaving. Granted, I don't know what my future holds. There might become a reason, but... I am New Yorker nowhere, and if that requires paying a city tax, well, you can go to any other city. That is such a New York attitude, by the way. Every New Yorker I've ever met is, this city is terrible. Everything's everything's horrible here. The taxes are terrible, but but it's New York, and that's how we do it here, and I don't want it any other way. And I was like, you guys have Stockholm Syndrome. You got to figure it out. I think we have. (laughs) We we just let Stockholm Syndrome run wild. The culture of New York is, I'm a New Yorker, nothing's going to change. I'll be like, hey, you know what? You, <laughs> it's a good personality. Um, the, the experience, however, was it was quite interesting and and much more traditional, I think, in the sense of, of how these things are, are accepted. Um, quite tedious. You do an interview. You finish the interview. You get a take-home assignment that they say, okay, when do you want to start the assignment? I was like, this time. It's like, great, you get two hours and you must email it back within the two hours. I was like, okay, that's stressful, but I'll do it. That's very stressful. No, it's more than two hours. <laughs> but, you know, you stress out a little bit. And what's worse is I couldn't download the file and I had to like scramble. And I was like, hey, this isn't working. And they're like, oh, uh, sorry. As soon as I did that, follow up interview, wait, 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 wait. Um, Randomly, as I'm having lunch with my now brother-in-law, I get a phone call. Again, these people with the random phone calls, no heads up. Stop 
please record, <laughs> email us. Nobody wants a phone call out of the uh, blue unless it's like our grandmother uh-huh. or maybe I guess our parents. You can't just call us. <laughs> Text us first. Oh, what's that? Th- yeah, so I get I get a phone call and they're like, "Hey, we would." You know, we we feel pretty good about you. We think you you're gonna be a good fit. We think you we want you for the position. And I was like, great. Um, why don't you send over a contract and and I'll take a look at it. Um, well, first of all, they send a offer to New York City. By the way, let me tell you about this. So they send you an offer letter, not a contract, an offer letter, and you say, yes, I'm willing to accept this offer. And they're like, great, we'll get back to you. Uh, and it will get back to you. And then I guess there's an initial approval that has to happen. And you wait a few months for that. That was the first phone call. I was actually at work at that time. They gave me a call. Just like, hey, can you do this offer letter? I was like, sure. I return the offer letter. I wait, wait, wait. Get a phone call like a month or two later. And they're like, hey, so heads up. We're now heading to the next phase of the process which is a unknown period of time and i was like what do you mean an unknown period of time i was like yeah so an so there's a oversight committee that has to kind of go over your resume now and i was like wait so do i have the job or don't have the job they're like you kind of have the job i was like awesome so how long is this gonna take they're like well anywhere from six months to a year or so and i was like or so yeah you've seen it take a while and i was like uh six months to a year so much can happen between that <laughs> i was like wait can you so kind of have a job yeah and they're like wait so okay and yeah we'll we'll follow up after you know but just want to keep you updated you know we're moving forward and i was like okay thankfully did not take six months it took them about three and ish three ish months but it's um, still a really long time <laughs> yeah very long time it's like three ish or so months was it three? No, I think it's like four, four, four-ish months. Then they're like, great, now you have to do all this paperwork and a background check and da 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 da. And so. And that took a year, yes. That took about, you know, yeah, that took about a decade. Um, that part wasn't so bad actually. And then I was like, they're like, great, when can you start? And I was like, well, I got some. I'm getting married soon. You know, they're like, okay, that's fine. We can wait till after that. I was like, cool. Um, I also kind of want to finish a project here. Can I start in like? This is this is uh, June. I was like, can I start in like September? And they're like, sure. I was like, really? They're like, yeah, you can start. They were like, this is how wonderfully run the city is. They're like, you know, you can kind of just start whenever. And I was like, really now? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but no, I, I chose September because I had to take care of some stuff. You know, first at home. And then mm-hmm. they're like, great. We'll see you in September. And I was like, awesome. Uh, it was it was kind of interesting how spaced out everything was. And there was there's no feedback. There's no update. They kind of just wait and see what happens. And here you are in New York. You just kind of appear. That's incredible. So when you were interviewing, were you still in California? I was. Okay. So they expected you to move here then because... They want New York City employees in office. Correct. I was uh, alerted to the fact that it was a mandatory, you must live in New York. And I, I was see. like, yeah, it's an adventure. I'll do it. Sure. 
I see. So that's maybe why they allowed you to start a little later so that you could move here. I got the sense that things are pretty fast and loose in the Department of Transportation. And as long as it's reasonable, it's okay. Uh, yeah, I think part of it was like the, um, you know, the person who's who's hiring me, like also had like some vacation lined up in August. And so they were going to be out for a little bit. And they understood I had a lot of life stuff to kind of figure out. And I could still kind of start doing the onboarding paperwork anyways, remotely. So it didn't quite, quite matter that I was there right straight away. And so um, it kind of worked out. It, you know, was a bit of a journey. It was quite a long path to to do this whole like interviewing process with them. And so kind of glad that it's over now. For me, I am glad it's over. These are my tax dollars again. So I am glad things worked out. This is true. For my sake. This is all about me, Tim. All clearly all of me. That was that was a joke. If, if, <laughs> yeah. Your your tax dollars aren't enough because I still had to pay processing fee <laughs> to get my application to get my paperwork processed out of not only a money order, but also out of my first paycheck. New Yorkers, you should be outraged. <laughs> I'm outraged. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have to pay for it. So I don't, okay, well, no, that is absolutely ridiculous. This being said, okay, you're, you're working for projects on City Bike. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're not in New York, or if you don't know what City Bike is, Tim, would you give us what City Bike is in a sentence? Yeah, so City Bike is one of many kinds of shared mobility and so if you know what that means it's basically like the lime scooters and things like that like that's all considered shared mobility city bike is a specifically a docked bike share program where you take a bike and you ride it from station to station right so it's not like it's not like the scooters or other bike systems where you kind of just like ride it wherever you want and drop it wherever you want it has to be taken from point to point um the city bike program is not managed by City Bank. It is sponsored. It was originally sponsored by City Bank, hence the name City Bike. However, it has had many owner changes oh. over the years. It is currently owned by Lyft, and so yeah, and so you can actually get City Bike from your Lyft app, um, and it's quite cool. You, I believe, it it covers all of Manhattan. It covers parts of the Bronx now, kind of like the I south. I have one outside my building. It covers most of Brooklyn, parts of Queens, not a whole lot of Staten Island. Is that, is that all five boroughs? Yes, it's all five. That is all five boroughs. Uh, yeah. It's... And that makes sense because those are Staten Island. A lot of people have cars mm -hmm. and same with people in Queens. Mm -hmm. So it would make sense that Manhattan and Bronx and Brooklyn, like, those would be the heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. So tell me what your day in day like is with city. Yeah. So I, some, I commute half the week. I sit down and kind of recently have been working on data projects that look into ridership behavior. And so what that means is, you know, we're basically just monitoring how people are using the system and from things like, what kind of bikes do people prefer to what is the equity of the system like, right? Because at the end of the day, the goal of a private company owning city bike is very different from the goals of the city. 
And the city's goal of the program has been and always will be to make it a public utility, right? A public good. It's not about generating income necessarily, uh, which is kind of at odds of a corporate corporation who is trying to make a profit. (laughs) And so we are fighting that. (laughs) That is interesting. I mean, it's great to hear because it connects so many people. I have so many friends that use it and love it. Um, Yeah, in a very capitalist country, hearing about something that doesn't want to generate a profit necessarily as its first goal is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I mean, we have to look at whether or not the program itself is sustainable. Obviously, like, we can't sink insane amounts of money into it, no, no matter how much of a public utility it may be, right? Those are your tax dollars, Alyssa. <laughs> tax dollars again. Oh. Again, Joe, all, you, all about you. This is your Thank podcast. You. Thank you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> let's, You're the host. I am the host, but these are definitely my tax dollars. So let's get back <laughs> to talking about how those are <laughs> And so there is a focus on whether the program, and there is a lot of discussion about how healthy is the city bike program. What does ridership cost look like? What does the system cost look like? Um, those are kind of bigger projects that are looming in the near future. Um, actively, currently, we're kind of interested in how people choose to use the system. And so there's this kind of new initiative from Lyft where they, for those of you who don't know, you can buy a annual subscription to City Bike, which, obvi- which basically gives you free bike rides on a manual bike. Okay, so like a normal pedal bike, you just kind of ride that around town. Um, and then a lower, a lower cost on the full electric e-bike. The gray ones you may see zipping around town. Those are electric e-bikes. Um, there was a perk where if that e-bike was the only bike, then you could get it for free as an annual member. Um, Lyft decided that that's too expensive, and so they've changed it. Where if you are a subscriber, you now have a choice to either take the bike out for free in a kind of low power mode where the bike basically just compensates for its weight because it is quite a heavy bike it's like 60 pounds which is very heavy for a bike um or you can pay still pay for the fully electric um kind of you know ride rider mode and so one of the questions we're asking now is does this impact rider decisions how are people changing the way they use the system are they changing the way they use the system um how does this impact people who are using the equity kind of subscriptions, right? So there's a lot of local initiatives to give those in kind of lower income neighborhoods cheaper or free um, subscriptions because it would be inaccessible to them otherwise. And so I think just a lot, yeah, I mean, the biggest question always is how fair is the system and how equitable is the system? And does it work in the way that it's intended by allowing people who normally would struggle with transportation greater opportunities, right? We talk about the first mile and the last mile, which is basically, are people able to use the bike to get to and connect to another transportation system that they normally wouldn't? And they can they use the bike to finish a ride from a transportation to a place that they normally wouldn't be able to get to? So that's a lot of the kind of day in and day out analysis that we do. And I'm sure to someone looking to study data science or analyze data, that would be those types of 
situations would be very, very fascinating to many. What's some of your favorite things about your job? Like, what do you really look forward to working on when you go to work every day? I think that the biggest draw for me, and you kind of have to, again, be a very special kind of person to work in government. You have to understand that it is not the glitz and glam of the tech world, right? For the most part, I'm sure there's, and there's, there's, I'm sure there's agencies out there that are, do very well for themselves. You have to really be dedicated to the idea that you are serving a public good, right? It's called you call it a public servant for a reason. And I think the thing that really keeps me currently in the job that really makes me um, want to be there is this idea that the work that I do is contributing directly to the potential life or death of a of a public system that impacts the lives of many people. And I think that when you consider what kind of impact you may have at in your career, you know, obviously think about yourself and your needs and, and what kind of financial goals you may have or, or lifelong goals you may have. But at the end of the day, to think that will keep you going at your work is do you enjoy what you do? And for me, having come from academia, having taught, having always kind of been a person who enjoys doing this sort of thing, being able to work with and in the public space is quite, quite an exciting opportunity, which, you know, I hope to continue. I'm pretty quite new. So I, I, uh, I'll be frank, there isn't a whole lot for me to work on at the moment because I am quite new to, to, to New York. Um, but I, I am... I am excited for the possibilities and, and I hope that those possibilities come to fruition and, and that, yeah, I mean, you have to really just decide for yourself, like, yeah, you know what? I love my job. You know, this is what I want to do. And, and, and that I really do enjoy this because I get to make a positive lasting impact on, on those around me and those in the city, though, I, even though I may not know them and, and kind of more selfishly, it's kind of cool to walk around like city by guy. Yeah. I work on that, you know, it it changes perspective. That's a very cool thing to feel like seeing your product out there. And I can speak for some of my friends and colleagues. They love city bike. It gets them where they need to go. And it's a better option to them than the subway. So you are, Tim, making an impact in the city, even though you just moved here. As I talk as a transplant who would be judged by a real New Yorker. <laughs> so with that being said, we are coming up on time and I would love to know what's next for you. You are making moves with government as a public servant at City Bike, but what do you want next? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I'm currently still exploring the, the exact breadth of the space within the city, right? And... While while it is very cool to work for the city, one what I really care most about is my ability to grow. And so, if you are a growth driven person, then you're constantly constantly thinking about the work that you're doing and how it expands your skills. And so, for me, I'm very interested in is the work that I'm doing not only meaningful but also is it meaningful for myself am i growing from this am i learning from this 
am I able to take what I have and then apply it to new things, right? Am I being challenged? You know, kind of circles back to, are there ever moments of work where I feel stupid? Um, and so I think for me, the next thing is seeing how this plays out, you know, seeing what I can learn and then picking the next industry or company that I might be interested in learning about and, and doing things for. Still within the realm of science, data science, of course, but, you know, I think that I'm trying to keep focused on the learning aspect, but also look forward to what other opportunities and industries are out there. Um, and I'll say something very quickly, uh, which again, may not be traditional career advice, but even if you have a job, keep applying to new jobs. Just, you know, like once a month, apply to a few jobs here and there, right? Like up to your as keep your resume updated, keep keep your skills updated, right? And and just keep applying. And that's how you get the most growth. When you constant you know, don't switch a job every three months, maybe, but well, with your track record, it takes <laughs> six months to a year to get a job. So yeah, right, right. So you know, about six months in, you want to start applying for the next one because that's about how long it'll take you to get uh, get a new job, anyways. But no, for really, like, if you want the most growth, not only in terms of salary, like number one, like people who switch jobs every two years tend to have much higher salaries, and people who stay at the same job for ten plus years, that's number one. Number two, changing companies is the best way to grow your grow you get to learn new environments new skill sets new problems new approaches and new solutions so you know make sure you you're doing that you know make sure you're you're challenging yourself and and you're choosing to plan out your life in a way that allows you to keep changing or, I mean, if you're very happy with your art, don't ignore me and just stay where you are. Because if you love what you do, then, like, please, like, don't don't feel like you have to change jobs, conversely. Yes. I think, Tim, there's a lot of wisdom in what you said. I'm sure people will take what they want from this. And, yes, I, I agree. There is something to be said for constantly challenging yourself, whether that's getting a new job or seeking out a different opportunity between different projects at the same job. And with that being said, would you be open to having people connect with you on social media like LinkedIn? Sure. Yeah. Let me verify my LinkedIn. Uh, but yes, if you if you like to find me on LinkedIn, my name is Timothy Liu, uh, T-I-M-O-T-H-Y space L-U. Um, feel free to find me on LinkedIn if you like. I'm more than happy to talk to people about data science, what it takes to be a data scientist, and more about my experience at Springboard as well. well thank you so much for your time and sharing your story. I think a lot of people will take your unconventional advice to heart. And for anyone else who's interested, if you have further questions for Timothy or myself, or are a springboard alum and would like to be featured as a guest please email me at alumni podcast at springboard.com